All right. Uh, welcome to another episode of Me and a Bunch of White Girls. It is, oh my God, episode 10. <gasps> 10 whole episodes, 10 whole weeks. I can't believe it. It's gone by so quickly. Um, but I'm happy to be here and I'm happy to bring all of my amazing friends to this space, aka the studio, aka my house, um, <laughs> to just drink and talk and share and experience growth with me. So, uh, as usual, I am your host, Clark. I am a media consultant here in Washington, D.C. I am joined today for this landmark episode. <laughs> I mean, it's episode 10. That's a big deal. It's, it's kind of a big deal. I'm going to treat it like it's a big deal. I don't know. It's my first we'll podcast. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm here with my good friend, Rebecca. Hi. Rebecca is an activist organizer working in the reproductive justice movement. If you've been listening to the show, you've heard that phrase quite a bit I feel like you should know what it means by now but if you don't I'll add a link <laughs> it's totally fine I can give my spiel oh yeah oh I love that um but Rebecca and I used to work together and that's how we know each other um Rebecca is from Texas the southernmost tip of Texas so what town is that um it's called the Rio Grande Valley okay the Rio Grande Valley beautiful um, no Rio Grande Valley um <laughs> it's it. um it's about, my hometown's called Edinburgh, and it's about a oh. five-minute, ten-minute drive from um, Mexico. So oh, okay. if all of that hoopla on the news that you hear about the border wall, that's in my backyard, in my family's backyard. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you were based, you're still based in Texas, mm -hmm. but when you first started working with the organization that we met at... <laughs> Were you already in Austin at that point, or were you still no, RGB? No, as soon as I turned 17, I, like, peaced out and moved Ooh. to Austin to get my undergrad, mm -hmm. and um, I, I moved away to Philly for a couple years and then back to Austin, and that's where I'm, I'm currently based. And uh, how do you feel about Austin? <laughs> oh. I've never been. I've never oh, been to Austin. Sweet, sweet Austin. Um, but it's I, always on the list of like, millennials, move here. Yeah, uh, four million people are expected to move in in the next year. It's, it's yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, it is ground zero for a gentrification station. There's, mm -hmm. it's a very white city. And that makes a lot of sense because of a lot of things, but it also doesn't. Um, I love it. It will always be my home. I've been there on and off 10 years, mm -hmm. but it's slowly becoming not for me anymore. And mm. I'm, yeah, coming to a city near one of you. So. <laughs> Get ready. Yeah. Um, so what drove you to Philadelphia? Oh, man, a girl. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm very queer uh, and have been for the majority of my life. And I, um, I met a girl in college and I was visiting her mm. every other month for about a year. And I fell in love with Philly. Philly is like the south of the East Coast. <laughs> that you, you lived in Philly. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I loved it. It. It was everything I loved about New York without mm. having to be in New York. Mm. It had affordable rent and yeah. brown people and yes. so much culture. I fucking love Philly. Philly. I would live there again in a yeah. hot second. Yeah. That's kind of like what drove me there too. Yeah. Because I grew up in white suburbia in Northern Virginia. Um, and I got to Philly and it was just like 
it was like a whole nother world and like exactly what I wanted from my college mm-hmm. experience. I did not want the same. I didn't want anything like where I'd grown up. I didn't want to be stuck in the middle of nowhere. Like, yeah. I It was exactly what I needed. And like New York at the time terrified me. Yeah. It still does. And not like it's so big, so many people. It's like the expectation that I'm supposed to be having like the time of my life. That's every what single scares moment. You? Yeah. It's just, it gives me a lot of anxiety. Oh. It's just like, well, what if... I'm not having a good time. Yeah, that's real. Am I doing the city wrong? Am I failing? Like, this is supposed to be the one place Uh I'm supposed to have the time of my life. And I'm not. What scares me is the prospect of living in a shoebox. Like, that's... Mm. that's (laughs) How can you have the time of your life in a shoebox? You live in a closet. How with how like are you ten ha- roommates? Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. <laughs> but I feel that I go to my best friend actually lives in New York, um, and I go pretty frequently. And there's just so many things to do and yeah. eat and see that I end up getting really overwhelmed and just ordering takeout and staying in her apartment because I don't know what to do. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes. I feel like that's where DC gets me. There um, are a lot more introverted people here I think um and it's a much smaller city like there's a ton to do but not nearly as much as New York there just yeah. aren't that many people yeah. there's not that much space <laughs> and you can live in a shoebox if you want here too that's true <laughs> and pay a shit ton of money for it yeah it's true but DC is very you Clark I feel like <laughs> just from what I know of you it's a good mix of Philly and New York and it's your balance and yeah your speed. yeah so. yeah I was very surprised DC's to learn that. To, yeah, I feel like DC is forever gentrifying. Like, there's yep. always, depending on who's in office, like what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, it has a lot of the traditional issues of just like police brutality and class. like, mm-hmm. yeah, class and race and all of that. Yeah. But I feel like DC will always have just like this immense culture of activism and like pushback and people who are saying like no fuck that this is our city we're gonna keep it that way yeah um so yeah DC I feel that when I'm here so you lived in Austin you moved to Philly what was your time like there what were you doing in Philly in Philly um so I moved for a girl but that quickly you know as relationships do when you're 22 years old Mm. uh did not last very long yeah and uh, I love the city, so I decided to stay there. I, I worked for this horrible lawyer for a hot minute while I was trying to find, like, the perfect job for me. Yeah. And then I I found the perfect job for me, which at the time, um, I was a little baby Lena Dunham feminist. Like, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't understand, like, any kind of ideas about intersectionality or, yeah. like, race or class theory. I was just like, women, we deserve... <laughs> Um, and my so, sisters, yeah. make arm with my strawberry blonde. Yeah, vagina <laughs> politics. Um, and so I was like, okay, I I had worked for a, um, I did like an AmeriCorps thing and worked at a nonprofit where we did social emotional counseling for middle school age girls, oh, which wow. was really hard and really wonderful. And I was like, oh, I actually don't. The world has enough lawyers. Like, mm. I don't need to go to law school. This is kind of my trajectory now yeah um and so I found this nonprofit in um in Philly and I won't say the name because it still exists <laughs> but it was a very much a white lady nonprofit, mm-hmm. um headed by white women the board was white women like white women all day in Philly which makes no sense yeah. if you've been to Philly 
But my supervisor and the person who interviewed me, who is still like my hero and mentor to this day, she like was the reason that I just worked there. Um, and I ended up not loving it, but knowing that like I needed to stay here and do this job. I worked in development for anybody who's not a nonprofit. That's basically like fundraising grants, grant writing, like kissing ass to foundations, yes. compromising all of your values. <laughs> um, the use. The use, you know, um, terrible yeah. things. Yeah. Um, in the name of philanthropy, of course. Yeah. So I did that for two years until I got offered um, that, that same job, um, organization that I did my AmeriCorps position at mm-hmm. offered me a job and I moved back. And yeah, that's, I was there for about two and a half years. Wow. And being at that organization, obviously, (laughs) I wish to be like, wow, I wonder if anything would have happened there. Oh, (laughs) funny you ask. uh, hmm. Like, obviously. Mm -hmm. Now, how much did you like experience? Because I know like there are things that like stick out to you. Was it like a constant daily thing or were these just like really intense moments? About like, micro or macro aggressive from the white ladies yeah. in the office. Yeah, yeah, it was a constant thing. Just because for those of you, I don't know if you're going to post a picture of me. You definitely, yeah. Oh, of course. Okay, well, take a look at take a look at me. <laughs> I uh, I am five foot two and very clearly le- like look like a Latina, like mm-hmm. I am. Um, and so white ladies who are very tall love to tower over me and kind of exert their white lady power. Um, and so. You know, that feeling was just always there. Hmm. Our executive director on my very first day at the organization came into my office and was like, hello, hi, I'm so happy you're here. Um, So if you could just submit a photo of yourself and um, a short bio, and it would be fantastic if you included the fact that you speak Spanish, you know, maybe towards the beginning of, of your bio. And I was like, okay. But I don't speak Spanish very well. Um, I yeah, my parent like I'm a third gen. My my grandparents were raised in born in Mexico, but my parents weren't. And so and you know, there's a lot of stigma where I come from of like trying to anglicize and trying to like normalize yourself as an a quote unquote American and mm-hmm. what that looks like is not speaking Spanish. And so my parents like didn't teach me Spanish growing up. Um, and so that's something I really struggle with in in the Latinx culture. We call ourselves pochas, mm. which is basically like a very clear presenting Latinx person who doesn't speak Spanish. Mm. And so to have this white woman be like, oh, this is the thing I value most about you. Clearly, yeah. it was. This is why you're here. Right. Yeah. Mm. Is, and in, in Philly, like. There's really strong Latinx communities, but in the nonprofit sector, not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was very clear and very um, strange. And I had never really had an experience like that up to that point, because in Texas, there's a lot of Latinx people. Yeah. Um, but not so much in, in Philly, I guess. Yeah. So when she asked you to put this in your bio and you're like, that would be a lie. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot do I mean, that. But there was a certain, like, I, the, oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so it's hard because I still work in the nonprofit yeah. industrial yeah, yeah, sector. Yeah. So yeah. I feel kind of, I don't actually feel bad talking any shit on it. But like the reality of it is, is that 
uh, nonprofit movements really burn out people and exploit people, especially young people. Like we are given these jobs and we're expected to feel grateful to, for them. I got paid twenty three thousand dollars a year full time at this job, mm-hmm. which in any mm-hmm. major metropolitan city mm-hmm. is not enough to no. even like one paycheck on a bi week by monthly paycheck was not enough to cover my rent. No. Um, and so we're made to believe that we're so lucky to have these jobs and like we should be like thanking these white women who yes. are coming and saving us and, and plucking us from our freshly undergraduate yep. experiences. Yep. And um, taking that passion yeah. and desire for change that you right. have in exploiting it. Right. And something I think about a lot is how like true organizing and activism is something that you can't actually get paid to do because if you're held accountable to these white women who are like giving you standards and deadlines and like things to meet, mm-hmm. the passion is just squashed. And so we're taking these young people straight out of school who have just been enlightened and are having these experiences and we're like watering that watering that down yeah. and like corporatizing it. And so imagine what we could do if we actually like organized outside of this movement. Yeah. Anyway, that's what happened to me. I got watered down. Yeah. Um, what was your like experience with that on a day to day? Were you like accepting of it? Were you automatically like, I reject this. I'm going to try to change this organization any way I can while I'm here. Sort of. I, I mean, I was uh, still a baby feminist. Like mm-hmm. I didn't really understand the in- like intersectionality as a concept yet. And so I did feel lucky, especially because I was just like desperate for money. Yeah. Um, but I they're like slowly being there and understanding like oh I actually am good at my job like I'm doing fine um there were things that happened that I just didn't agree with and would push back on we wanted to honor a very prominent trans woman at um at our one of our events and the board and the that same white executive director was like we don't we we only honor women and Mm. that just like even for a baby feminist who didn't really yeah. understand, I'm still a decent human being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was, that was one thing. And also just like the extreme inequity in, in pay, like this, you know, the executive director, this woman made a, six figures mm-hmm. and then here I am making $23,000 a year. Yeah. And there was a staff of like seven. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. And you're asked to do like fundamental work for the organization. Yeah. Oh yeah. And we didn't have a development director for mm-hmm. a long time. And so I like took on a lot of that work and still did not make, didn't get a raises or anything. So being there when you first started early in your time there, you said you were a baby feminist. Like, you mm-hmm. didn't have that education yet. What got you there? What kind of spurred you into that new mentality? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think reading a lot and like, the friends that I made in Philly were weren't activists necessarily, but they there was a lot of I had a lot of black friends who dealt with black, like black struggle, obviously. Mm-hmm. And when you understand that the two are intrinsically connected, mm. like and you see it played out in the real world, there's no way you can be like yeah. submitting grants being like, look at us doing all this great work in yeah. these white communities. And you're yeah. like, wait a minute. Uh, this doesn't make sense and I don't feel right asking for money from these foundations where all of these like it was like a two million dollar budget and I just kept thinking about what that money could actually directly be funding instead Mm -hmm. of just like 
quote unquote public education about mm. like feminist issues when it's like who what feminists <laughs> which feminists yeah yeah so so who like what was the education based on like you know traditional white lady issues like workplace equality mm-hmm. um like lean in <laughs> lean in Cheryl Sandberg <laughs> bullshit yeah yes cool. yes okay all I right I need another drink just thinking about these two years of my life <laughs> you're uh, just like shuddering you're like okay all right what all is right. this cognac <laughs> I'll take some of this <laughs> There's rum up there too. No, I'm fine. <laughs> this, this is good. Wait, hold on. She's okay. pouring. All right, great. Thank you for the booze, Clark. You know, I do what I can. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, so you were here for two and a half years, mm-hmm. and through that time, you reeducated yourself. I also, so my my girlfriend in the time that I had broken up and I moved into a one bedroom. It was the first time I ever mm. lived alone. And I like lived that Carrie Bradshaw life of like smoking cigarettes <laughs> outside my window while I read and like wrote and you know, <laughs> um, and that was also like the time, like this sounds stupid, but it's a big deal. Like that was the time when Tumblr was at its height. And I learned so much about mm. politics, like my politics, yeah. queer politics, um, different people's experiences just by being on Tumblr. I mean, for God's sake, I met my girlfriend on Tumblr. Did you really? Yeah. Wow. I used to be embarrassed of that. And now I'm just like, No, Tumblr used to be amazing. I lived my life. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's great that you also brought up Tumblr because Danielle also, like, described Tumblr as Mm -hmm. this place that re-educated her as well. Yeah. And I, I find it so interesting that like a space like that died. Well, like how like how did that happen? How is it like so intrinsically valuable to people? And now like it's like a joke. That's a really good question that I actually think about way often, way more often than I should. Um, <laughs> what happened to Tumblr? So like really, I feel like officially what happened to Tumblr is they took off porn. And yeah, because yeah. I was just about to say, like, Tumblr was, like, part of my sexual awakening. Yeah, mine too. Obviously. <laughs> I, I straight up came out yes. on Tumblr. Like, Love it. shout out to all of my, <laughs> all of those lesbians on Tumblr. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, I think if I think about it mm. a lot, Tumblr is a place where people could really be vulnerable in mm. the same way that, like, LiveJournal could. And when you're younger, you just have less reservations about yeah. putting yourself on the internet and That's like true. pouring your heart out and then when you grow up you're just like mm. oh i have like what if my employer finds this mm. what if my partner finds this like mm. shit and we become more um less likely to want those parts of ourselves on the internet and so we all grew up and mm. that whole tumblr generation grew up and i feel mm. like tumblr died with our souls mm. <laughs> yeah mm. that's we just, just a theory like i don't know treated and we relied on like the short-lived mm-hmm. Snapchat. Yeah, instant gratification. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm sure there's other things like Tumblr got ads and mm. everything becomes irrelevant after a while. Like, no one uses Facebook anymore. But it's yeah. really sad because Tumblr was super important for me. And I, like, yeah. I know that it helped a lot of people. And so I hope that – I doubt that Instagram's doing that for anyone. But 
And I I feel like Instagram wants to be doing that. Does it? People. I, there are moments when I, because I go for the art. I follow a lot of photographers, mm-hmm. a lot of artists on Instagram because oh, I love the pretty pictures. <laughs> like, that's why I'm there. I don't go for the Fitzbo. I don't go for the influencers. I don't go for the influencers, the lifestyle bloggers. There are very few mm-hmm. that I follow. And if I do, they're black yeah. women who are also interested in the things I'm interested in, like yeah. natural skincare, all of that. That is why I'm following you, yeah. not for anything not for the not for the life you're portraying to me, but more like the product recommendations you have as like a professional. In this yeah, space. yeah, totally. Um, but then I'll see a lot of people posting pictures of like themselves crying or like oh really yeah or like you know curled up in bed and then it'll be like this like mini essay in the caption about oh, like yeah, anxiety that. and depression the oversharing and, like, yeah the oversharing but I feel like Tumblr offered space for some of that mm-hmm. but maybe it felt like more authentic because yeah. it wasn't relying just on like the 800 by 800 pixel square image to like draw you to right whatever I wrote in my caption. You could just write something right. and put in. Followers would see it. Right. And you're also... It, Tumblr felt like this secret that nobody mm. else knew. You were able to create your own world in it mm-hmm. and you had a URL. URL yeah. And like, yeah. you were able to hide yourself mm-hmm. way easier. Where Instagram... That's like, true. If you put it on private, then no one's going to see it unless you... Which is a good thing, I guess, for mm-hmm. some people. But like, you know, if it's public, you that could go far and wide. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's true. Yeah. R.I.P. Tumblr. <laughs> I know. Thanks for my relationships, <laughs> my political awakening. Yes. My, a lot of selfies, a lot of bad, bad short stories. Oh, <laughs> please. Those of you don't listen, if you don't ever go looking for my Tumblr, don't do it. It's still there. Yes. I think mine is still, still exists too. Mine was like, I posted a lot of like photos. So I was still in college. So I was taking photography classes. Oh, yeah. So, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Photo student stuff. <laughs> I know that I was a minor. I minored in photojournalism until my car got broken into and all oh, my cameras shit. got stolen. Oh. And I was like, can't do this anymore. Wow. Yeah, that sucked. Wow. This I bet was... it was a white lady. <laughs> I'm sure it was. <laughs> so you're in Philly. You're getting this education. What was the thing that kind of ended your time there? When did you know you had to go? Um, it, so it, coincidentally, it was, I didn't want to leave. Like I mm-hmm. loved it. My friends would make fun of me. They were like, you hate Philly. Like it's cause I can't handle the cold. So like mm. I really can't warm blooded <laughs> mammal. Um, but I ended up just like really falling in love with it and created this incredible community that I still mm-hmm. have when I go back today. Um, but my job was just like, you can only be a development court. What the hell is my coordinator you can only make twenty three thousand dollars for so long yes. and the nonprofit sector of philly is like really bleak so surrounding philly it's called the mainline mm-hmm. um it's actually the highest concentration of wealth in the entire country and the least philanthropic mm-hmm. um ironically not ironically capitalism but yeah. um i just like hit a point and the I started thinking about moving back home and, and the organization that I worked with before 
um, my supervisor at the time called me and was like, hey, we got funding. We're going to create a new position. I'm inviting you to like apply and, and, and in essence take it. Yeah. And the second like that day that she offered it to me, I got called into a closed door meeting with the executive director mm-hmm. and they cut my job. Wow. Yeah, they like were laying off people. And I was yeah. like, well, I don't need a sign. Like within two weeks, I packed my bags and, and left. Yeah. And now I miss it all the time. But and I, I wonder about, you know, if I had stayed, if mm-hmm. I would be even more radicalized or like mm. what what would have happened. But I can always go back. That's so true. Mm-hmm. And what was like what was your radical education like in Austin? Because you were talking about it being this like huge like. Like the prime example of gentrification. Yeah. What was your education like there? Um, I think... When you first moved there, at least. When I first moved? Yeah. I was, moved back. Oh, moved back. Yeah. I wasn't for a long time. I dated a lot of white girls. Mm. Like, I, we can get into that. Um, <laughs> I dated a lot of white girls who just, like, did not have any kind of understanding. I dated a fucking Republican. Yeah, dude. Oh, she didn't... Clark, no, 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 listen. When I dated her, she thought that abortion was murder. Like, straight up. And then she texted me, like, uh, maybe a, six months to a year after we broke up at the Women's March. Yeah. And it was that's definitely a year. Um, at the Women's March being like, thank you for blah, blah, blah. Like, she was a, a Huckabee supporter. I shit you not. There are only like three of those in the she, entire world. She's one third of that population. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So I think just like being with these white girls who. So where I'm from is 98 uh, percent Mexican or Mexican American. Mm-hmm. And anytime like a white person would come into our high school, we automatically thought they were the most beautiful, like gorgeous. Oh. And so it took me a long time to like decolonize my desire and whenever white girls would like me, all of my girlfriends had been white. Mm. Um, I just felt really special. Like, mm. you know what I mean? Like, I, it, it's a weird feeling. But um, once I realized that that feeling of specialness was actually fetidization. Yeah. Um, that just like a switch just flipped. Um, yeah. And so it's funny that you're asking me what my radicalization like in Austin was in like <laughs> having <laughs> you're like oh, oh um stop dating white girls homie like that <laughs> that's what it was um this is no longer serving you no, was never serving you to never begin with serving me i just like got really fucking tired of like explaining why you mm. should care mm. about things like <laughs> I, I'm able, I'm a very empathetic person. I'm a cancer. Um, I'm a very empathetic person and I can look at the world and feel really deeply about the things that are happening and to be with women who just don't understand that and never will. I knew I needed to like date somebody who was like at least on my wavelength. Cause I like, as you get older, I feel like you radicalize more because you're able to see more shit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to ignore. Yeah. So much yeah. harder to ignore. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, I uh, I was dating. I started dating somebody who was very involved in in the Palestine organizing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw the connection of like you know there's a there's walls there, there's walls here. It's an apartheid state. It's 
I I just couldn't unsee it once I understood it. And yeah. once you can't un- like once you see things, you can't unsee them. And I will never go backwards. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Community uh, like finding great people in Austin community is what radicalized me. What spaces did you go to to find them? Hmm. There's, you know, there's not a lot. And I think feel like I got really lucky. Mm. I am friends with a lot of people who do direct funding for abortion access. Oh, okay. And so, yeah, um, there's a lot. It's different when you work for a nonprofit that's like funding education or doing all of the, mm-hmm. the things except actually directly funding something. Um, and so meeting people who actually did that and who um, I went to a lot of like book readings and mm. Uh, all of my friends started to become queer and so Mm. whenever I would hang out with like cis het white people Mm. I was just like you you guys just like aren't my people yeah how does it feel to not be oppressed at all (laughs) what's that like I've I've no idea clearly (laughs) Clark um, I mean imagine walking outside and the world is just like created for you I can't. Like, what? I can't. I was listening to, um, I believe it was Patrice Cullors mm-hmm. on Politically Reactive. And she was talking about going to an event in North Carolina where, like, she'd gotten death threats. For she was what? Like, speaking oh. at an event on, like, a North Carolina campus. She was getting mm-hmm. death threats. And a friend of hers. Um, suggested she call like the Nation of Islam because like they'll just like send local they'll area bodyguards like Fruit yeah. of Islam will just come yeah call them they'll come and so she did <laughs> and she was like describing the experience of just walking around North Carolina with like six tall black men ready to throw down at any moment if someone looked at you sideways she was like i think that's the closest i'll ever come to feeling like a white person (laughs) (laughs) just feeling that secure walking through the world like never will get that dude i think about that all the time like my so texas is very big and it's like really fun to be able to go to the outskirts and like go to little towns and antique shop and like whatever and so I constantly go with people who are either white or white passing, like whether it's a girlfriend or Mm -hmm. friend or whatever. And I always have a a wonderful time. Two weeks ago, I went to go find some barbecue and I was like, I'm going to take a day to myself and Mm -hmm. just like explore this tiny town, have a great time. Mm -hmm. It was not a great time. (laughs) Like what happened? I, wow. I walked into the store and I was like, Texans are really friendly. Like, and why are you being rude? Okay, it's just this one guy. I go into another store and he's just like ignoring me. And I'm like, okay, you know what? This town, like maybe there's asbestos in the water. Like, I don't know, whatever. So I go to this other store and it's really big. And I'm walking around looking at antiques. And the two white women, like older white women who are in there, I, uh, I was behind them while they were like doing something on the register. Mm-hmm. And one of them turns to the other one and goes, and it's like, early in the morning like there's no one else in the store yeah they're like um can you follow around the little mexican girl and make sure she doesn't take anything fuck Uh uh-huh i took a postcard from (laughs) y'all just to spite your asses oh my god yeah but like and you'd been to like the same type of stores oh i've never had problems yeah never had sideway looks like Hmm. yeah 
And I, you know, that's, you asked me earlier about Austin and like yeah. how I feel about it now. And there's, I feel like there's two types of racism in this country. There's a million types, but yeah. like there's in this deep South, you have really direct racism where it's like, at least you know what you're going to get. Like these people are fucking racist. And then you go to like the Northeast or like yeah. the California and it's like, oh, we're not racist, but we're just going to push you out of your neighborhood. Yeah. We're just going to like dance around it. We're going to. Yeah. We're fixing we're, it. Yeah, we're bringing we're, yeah. industry and econ- we're boosting the economy. We're doing education for the police. Yeah. Like, yeah. That kind of shit. And Austin is becoming that. Okay. I was in a a bar or like I was having brunch the other day and I would not get served. Like they wouldn't serve me. And my white friend, I was like, can you give me mimosa? And she got it and without any problems, but they wouldn't serve me the whole time I was there. And I was like, really? I live two blocks from here. Yeah. That's Austin. Mm. Yep. Have live, you, Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say I live next to a full-time Airbnb now. In a oh black, yes. In a black neighborhood. Yeah. Yes. I remember seeing this. Yeah, social. That was like, and like the bird outside. Oh no, it's South by Southwest right now. Oh yeah. Two days ago, there were fourteen white men and Sperry's in this three bedroom house with about ten little fucking scooters in the driveway. Damn. Blasting Limp Biscuit. Oh my god. (laughs) I am unironically blasting Limp Biscuit. In the backyard playing beer pong. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. That's my life. And there's three black black Baptist churches a block yeah. away. The juxtaposition is yeah. disgusting. Yeah. It's like a historically black neighborhood. Yeah. No, no, no. For for real. These little assholes. Like, yeah, this is my world. I I live here now. So do you see any because I feel like I've noticed more, and maybe it's just because again. My eyes have been opened. I can't unsee. So <laughs> yeah. I'm paying more attention to yeah. um, certain like revitalization efforts in like major cities focused on building black industry or industry led by people of color. In Austin? Or, no, like oh. other places. <laughs> oh, yeah, because that's that doesn't exist in Austin. And you don't see it coming anytime soon. Absolutely not. No way. It's just taken by the tech yeah attack um but also just like that type of somebody told me the other day they were like austin is a place where you are so aware of what you're doing you're conscious of what you're doing and you're posting it on social media Mm -hmm. everything you're doing because it's like austin is very beautiful like aesthetically Mm -hmm. gorgeous and so the areas of town that are like inhabited by you know what white people would consider to be undesirables Mm. they're not gonna like they're not gonna do anything to save actual neighborhoods and actual communities there's this white woman i know who literally makes her her entire job on gentrifying and Mm. sending uh and selling real estate in more uh, quote affordable areas Mm. she posted something in like a traditionally like black and and latinx area and said Super cheap rent, not the most desirable neighborhood, mm. but for the rent, it's worth it. Mm. And like, I feel like that's Austin in a nutshell. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess the more white people move into those neighborhoods, the more like white businesses feel it's like, okay, right. there are customers here finally. So let me buy or lease and build and yeah, 
open up a wine bar. Like, how does it benefit them to have black culture in their mm. city? Mm. Like, why would they do any kind of efforts? Hmm. So I, I feel like that is the gentrification that's happening. In D.C. is like different in that way, because like I live really close to H Street corridor mm-hmm. um, and there are like uh, D.C. is a very historic city, obviously. And they have because there are a lot of tourists that come through here for the history. They have these like signposts on like occasional blocks and corners will be like, oh, like here's a picture of what this used to look like in like 1809 and then like a little blurb. (laughs) (laughs) They have one on H Street um, that's like, oh, there are a lot of like black companies here based here on H Street and there are all these great pictures and you're like, oh, wow, so nice. And then you look around all these like residential apartments and like the Starbucks and the uh, Whole Foods (laughs) and and there is an apartment building. Whole Foods was born in Austin, and if that tells you anything, <laughs> that's that explains a lot. Yeah, <laughs> um, there's an apartment complex at the time it was being built. They had, um, it was it's called the Apollo, uh huh. And that right there, you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. There's, there's some history. Okay, for, what, what what's going on here? <laughs> and they were like in the process of building. And this is the apartment complex on top of the Whole Foods. They are connected. Mm. And I'm walking by, I'm on a run, actually, and I'm running by, um, and they have, like, storefront-type windows, um, because, you know, they're not done building everything, so they decide to put some pictures up. And they're Mm -hmm. pictures of, like, black life in, like, the 1950s, the 1940s. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. Just, like... That feels icky. It it was. Yeah. 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 It was. It was pretty gross. Because I was like looking at this luxury building being built, who, the, who can afford called to the live Apollo? There. Yeah. Exactly, and you're like marketing it to people That's <laughs> on the gross. street. It's like, look, yeah. like history, <laughs> like black people used to like play here. I right wish now. you could see. I wish y'all could see the face <laughs> that Clark is making right now. I mean, it was so disgusting yeah. that like I, I like. <laughs> I was like shaken. I was like, do, do I seriously live? And like, am I part of the problem? Like, am I? Am I part I see, of this? I Are think, they marketing to me? I think about that a like, lot. I think about that a lot. And so, like, I live in the black neighborhood in Austin, and it's like, I'm a millennial. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I can afford to live in the, my two bedroom house. And mm-hmm. am I the problem? Mm-hmm. That's a question that I ask myself about a lot of things yeah. all the time. And then I, when I really think about it, I'm like. Is so much bigger than thinking about individual choices. We need yeah. to be thinking structurally. Yeah. Like, if, we, you know, me renting out that house, at least I go, I go to, I would want to go to neighborhood meetings. I mm-hmm. call 311 on my Airbnb neighborhood's mm-hmm. asses every day. I'm like, they don't have a permit. Hello. <laughs> Get these <laughs> but like, white boys, please. Exactly. Like, I, I know my neighbors. I'm very involved mm-hmm. in my community. Like, I try to do that. But it's so much bigger and we need to be fighting for like the city to be structurally doing something Mm -hmm. about this and focusing less on like, am I the problem? Yeah. Yeah. And and that's honestly really hard. Of course. It's of course it's not easy. But (laughs) but what I mean, mean, what are you going to do about it? It's like, say, I eat Chick-fil-A. 
I'm a gay who eats Chick-fil-A, okay? Because it is so much bigger than me eating a delicious sandwich. As you drink the milkshake, it's like, it's not about me. It's not about me. (laughs) And listen, one time when I lived in Philly, I saw two female women identifying Chick-fil-A employees making out in the Chick-fil-A bathroom on their time. And that was the moment that I was like, I I don't feel bad anymore. (laughs) I did it for you. Yep, that was it. Of course, I try to, I mean, I obviously boycott things where it's like individual choices will make a significant difference. But there's going to be racists eating Chick-fil-A all day, so I'll eat it too. (laughs) So going back to, you know, being in Philadelphia, Working in these spaces, clearly we used to work together. That is not the organization. That's not how you polar opposite. (laughs) Polar opposite. You describe organization. You clearly found something better. That that actually radicalized me too. Is working at our organization. Yeah, same, same for me. Really? Oh, absolutely. I didn't know what reproductive justice was. How did you get a job? I don't know. (laughs) I am shocked. Honestly, the more I learned, I was like. Oh my god! How did you? But the our old DD said something really interesting, mm-hmm. and I won't forget it because it explained a lot. Um, in our board meeting, mm-hmm. the first board meeting, I think I've been there about a month, and she was talking to the board and talking about the work that she saw the organization, the vision for the organization in the next four or five, however many years. Nonprofits love the word vision. They really do. We love it. Love it. So <laughs> mission-oriented, values. Values, All focus. Of that. Yes. Step up, step back, step down. One diva, one mic. <laughs> All the things. I learned so many. Uh, that's another conversation. Sorry. <laughs> um, this cognac's good. Oh, I'm glad. I would like it. Um she was like, you know, we need to stop. We need to get over the idea that, like, we'll win by talking to each other. Like, we have to talk to other people in order to win. Yeah. And then I remember she mentioned, like, that's why like, we hired people like Clark, who are not from the movement, who are coming outside of it. Dude. How do we talk to Clark? How does Clark learn and then talk about this to others? Are yeah. we even educating properly? Because can she do it? Like, where's the proof that someone who had no idea what was going on here, can she come here, learn, and then go out in the world and be different? I appreciate appreciated that about her so mm-hmm. much, and I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. In, in the movement, we call it the movement, but like in, you know, the work that we do, yeah. so often it's just like, let's have a happy hour, and then the only people that, sh- to like a public education happy hour, yeah. and the only people that show up are people who already agree with you. Yeah. And that's not how you do anything. There's yeah. like a spectrum and it's like those people on that end and the other end mm-hmm. is like antis who just like don't agree, will never understand. Yeah. What about the people in the middle? We yeah. need to get them educated and on board and bring them to where we're at. Yes. Yes. And that I feel like was what happened to me where I had had all these experiences Mm -hmm. of like experiencing racism and sexism and classism and colorism and whatever. And I did all the isms and I didn't Mm -hmm. understand what they meant. 
And when someone actually took the time to, and I was angry yeah. and I didn't understand. And when someone took the time to sit me down and say, yeah. these are the things that are happening to you, they're happening on a structural level, yeah. on an institutional level, and you should be pissed. Yeah. That is what radicalized me. Yeah. I can't remember the exact conversation, but I know it's happened and I will never forget it. And that's why I'm here. And you're talking about reproductive justice, but I think it's really important to like really explain it again that mm-hmm. reproductive justice is not reproductive health. It's mm-hmm. not reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. If I had to say it in one sentence, it's it's just who has access. Mm-hmm. That's why I don't like the word choice, like mm. because you're like pro-choice, but whose choice? Mm. Like, what does choice even mean? And for all of its fucking problems, because you there will never be a nonprofit. When you're accountable to funders, you just you will always have problems. But there has never been another place where I just feel like people people around me, people that I work with get it. Yeah. When I first met you, I was like, oh, she gets it. She may not have the background in, you know, Mm -hmm. in all. She may not have read Kimberly Crenshaw or Mm -hmm. like Angela Davis or whatever, but she's lived it. She understands it. And when you prioritize hiring the people who the issues actually affect who these yeah. isms affect yeah then there's nothing but good shit yeah yeah it's just about like padding what they are the education they already were forced yeah. to have by being an oppressed being exactly <laughs> M- making it consumable exactly which is what you're doing yeah and it's i find that really admirable and really hard i can't imagine doing your job like I, I mean, for a lot of reasons. <laughs> I have, I'm surprised she invited me on this show because I have no filter. Like, it's really hard. But for real, like, I, I find it really hard to be around white people, specifically white cishet people. Mm-hmm. I find it really hard to be around them because I just don't have the time and patience to explain it to you. Yeah. I don't have the time to be like, this is why you should care. Mm-hmm. You sh- Google's free. Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. do you need us to do the emotional labor labor to explain to you? Yeah, and laziness, but, and they think it's why we're here. <laughs> well, yeah, but working in the nonprofit sector, like it's our job to mm-hmm. explain to yeah. you. So I explain all damn day for my job, and then I get home and I'm like, I don't want to go to a dinner party where people oh. are like, Oh, did you hear about an abortion bill? Like, what do you think about? you know this racial issue and i'm like shut up (laughs) (laughs) if i i swear to god if i hear one more comment about ilhan omar and this oh god like ilhan if you are listening (laughs) i have never in my life loved and respected a politician the way that i respect her yes yeah and white people don't get it they They don't don't. not all white people. I have I have some rad friends, but at the same time, like whenever a rad white person is talking shit, I'm like, black people have been saying this, brown people have been saying this for so long. Why is it revolutionary that this white person is saying this mm-hmm. when we've been saying it for forever? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to be friends. <laughs> I love all my white friends. Yeah, yeah, I, I do too. <laughs> I love mine too. So yeah. so. You've been radicalized in like one of the best spaces you could be. And now when you're going as like a leader in this organization, Mm -hmm. you're going into 
you're working in coalition, you're going into other spaces with organizations like the one you, you used to work for. Yeah. Oh, that's what a great What is that question. experience like now? That's a fantastic question. Um, it's hard. So I work with a lot of young people and I'm fortunate enough to mentor a lot of young people and I lead by example. So mm-hmm. I organize professionally like quote professionally how can you organize professionally Mm -hmm. but I do that and then I organize outside of that at the same like on my own and so whenever I'm talking to young people I really try to inspire critical thought especially the people that work on my team and that work for with and under me yeah um and so that is something I do within my organization but when you are able to do that and have the hierarchical power to do that at your organization it's really hard to be in those spaces with orgs that j- other orgs that just don't see eye to eye with you on that. Yeah. And so I, I try not to have imposter syndrome and I'm like our organization that I work at, my team is as radical as we can be. Yeah. So let me just own that and show up in these other spaces. Yeah. And if these other organizations are, I listen, I have a lot of problems with a lot of organizations, other orgs that I work with and I won't, I just don't back down. Like if you don't want to get on board with my values, our values, and we don't need to work with you. There's so many, there's so much space. There is so much work to be done, Clark. Yeah. You don't need to be fighting over turf or Mm. like making Mm. allowances to, for your own values to like preserve this relationship. Like, you don't, there's plenty of us out there. Yeah. So I try my best to like not compromise my values yeah. and also like know when, if it's not going to work, I just take a step back. Yeah. And I'm like, you don't get it. That's okay. I'm not here to educate you. I'm going to go do my own work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also how I approach life and people. Like that is okay, but I don't have the time to educate you. I don't have a problem with you. We can be adjacent friends, but like, I got my own community, dog. I love it. (laughs) Well, on that note, (laughs) thank you, Rebecca, for being on the show. Y'all, Rebecca literally just got in to Washington, D.C., from Texas and came straight to my house to do this. I I hope the booze. (laughs) I'm about to go to the lesbian bar. I'll see you later. DC just opened one and it's amazing. I'm about to bounce over there. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy you came on the show. Thank you. I love you, Clark. You're fantastic. Clark is a forever friend. Yay! Same. I agree. She's so fantastic. Anyway, thank you for listening to me, a bunch of white girls. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MBWG Podcast and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. Follow my Tumblr. <laughs> follow <her. laughs> Don't follow mine. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs>